UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, howling in the street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. All right. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have a fascinating show for you guys today. Um, today we're going to be deep, deep, delving deeper into the topics of psychedelics. And I have an awesome writer with me today. I have with me the writer Stephen Gray. Who, who, he also holds a conference as well. But the, he, uh, his new book out is called How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. A little bit more about my guest. Stephen Gray has been traveling spiritual and sacred medicine pathways for close to 50 years. He's a writer, educator, podcaster, psychedelic conference organizer, excuse me, organizer, speaker, and cannabis ceremony leader. Stephen is the author, editor of three books. For the past 10 years, Stephen has been the creative director for the iconic Spirit Plant Medicine Conference in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Since 2020, Stephen has also been interviewing leading influencers in psychedelics and consciousness transformation for the Stephen Gray YouTube, Stephen Gray Vision YouTube channel and related audio podcast formats. When not otherwise occupied, Stephen plays and composes music and indulges in his love of photography. He lives with his wife and their female cat, Henry, in Vancouver. Now, just a little bit more about this book. This book is amazing. It has contributions from Christopher Bach, Zoe Helene, Dennis McKenna, Martina Hoffman, the Dank Duchess, Jamie Wheel, Grandmother Maria Alice, and others. Uh, this explores the immense healing intelligence of nature, the wisdom and in ancient indigenous prophecies and shamanic practices, the importance of the divine feminine for environmental regeneration, and the crucial role of psychedelic and ethnogenic plants in initiating transformations of consciousness, exploring in the way forward of humanity in the face of unprecedented crisis, more than 25 contributors show the wisdom of indigenous peoples and the power of psychedelics, how they can help us enact and act the radical shift in consciousness necessary to navigate the collapse of the old world order and the birth of a new consciousness. And with all that said, I want to give in my speaker's website is stephengrayvision.com and spiritplantmedicine.com. And I want to give him a big warm welcome to the show. Stephen, thank you for joining me. How are you? Hey, thanks for that, uh, Rob. And uh, I'm good. Yeah. And happy to have a discussion with you. This book is amazing. I, I think it's, it's, it's perfect for like what's going on right now. I mean, I'm sure you hear this too. Everybody says we're in an awakening period or we're in like, you know, maybe the, like the planet's going through a rebirth or I mean, like the new agers will say we're going to the fifth dimension or we're, we're transcending. But I would say I'm not really bought into that so much, but I would say that we're in a time of consciousness expansion. I, I truly believe that. But like one of the things your book tells on is like breaking out with the old and in with the new. I mean, I think you, you term it as that we're in like, planetary turmoil that we need to get out of and plant medicine can help us with that. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So, so where, where, let me see where we want to go with this. Um, 
how did you start putting the book together? Um, hang on a sec. <clears throat> um, well, I've been involved with uh, various kinds of spiritual practices and um, psychedelic practices for a very long time. So it's been, you know, that kind of general ballpark has been with me for a long time. And as you mentioned in your intro, I've been uh, co-organizing this conference for 11 years. And there's, uh, it's pretty much exactly the same mission, the conference, as the book is. And in fact, I think it's 14 of the 25 contributors, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book have also spoken at the conference. So I've been, you know, immersed in this field for quite a long time. And at the same time, I've been aware of uh, this sort of approaching or maybe having uh, arrived already, uh, nexus point, crisis point, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, that, you know, that we're dealing with as a planetary species uh, for quite some time. And so it just kind of, you know, things built up and built up. And if you want a, a very specific answer about that, um, Chris Bache is pronounced is how the way his last name is pronounced. By the way, uh, it's confusing because it looks more like Bach, uh, you know, the the composer uh, Bach with an E, but pronounced Bache. Anyway, um, he's amazing. I I love him. He's a great guy for one thing. We're 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 more or less friends. Yeah, I'd say we're friends. Uh, he has spoken at our conference three times, and among his books, his most recent book is called LSD and the Mind of the Universe. And um, that's an incredible book. Uh, and so um, I have a lot of uh, respect for Chris. He's really intelligent. And so I, I've, I have phone conversations with him once in a while. And, and one of those about, I don't know when that was, about a year and a half ago, I told him that I was kind of, um, you know, this book idea was brewing, but I wasn't quite sure yet. It hadn't reached that stage where I was absolutely sure I was going to proceed with the project. And and so I talked with him a little bit about that. And he said, well, you know, Stephen, if you do that book, I will definitely contribute a chapter. And as soon as he said that, I was like, green light, I'm going. Um, so that's an answer more or less for that question. Yeah. And, and how, how would you say that we, 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 we do this? Like how, how, can, how can plant medicines and psychedelics help transform the consciousness of the planet so that we're on a better path than we are now? Yeah, sure. Well, that's that's the big question, I guess, isn't it, for the book anyway. Um, uh, right. So first of all, a little, you know, minor disclaimer. They're not the only way to heal and wake up. There are other ways. Uh, however, um, you know, one of the f ways that I like to talk about this is that, you know, as a metaphor, when the, when the patient, if you will, is in a severe or advanced state of illness, strong medicines are required. Uh, that's stands to reason, I guess, on multiple levels in terms of like real, quote unquote, you know, physical illnesses and so on. Um, and, and psychedelics are the strongest medicines we have. There's no doubt about it. And when I say medicines, I don't just mean like, you know, tangible physical material medicines. I mean, methods or whatever, you know, modalities, um, you know, in, in, when they're understood correctly, practiced, used correctly. And that's that's a big issue that we could talk about if you want to get into it at some point during this conversation. Um, you know, in optimal, uh, effective, safe, skillful circumstances, they're clearly the strongest, um, you know, awakeners that we have, or, you know, they, they, they just do that. You know, I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Um, one way that I like to talk, like to um, uh, sort of explain 
them in sort of simplistic terms, I guess you could say, not really you know, scientific or chemical particularly, um, is that uh, they have two intertwined overlapping um, functions or capabilities, I guess you could say. And um, uh, one of those is that um, because of the what they do to the, in the brain, um, and that's, you know, another kind of topic for the experts, really. But they, okay, so I should say maybe about that, the, 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 the sort of simple kind of, you know, quasi or pseudo scientific way of putting that is that they open up channels, they in the brain, they literally open up channels that are often maybe dormant or, you know, underused or actually shut down because you know, we're mind body synchronized, right? So if we're, if we're shut down spiritually, material, um, uh, emotionally, etc, then, you know, you might say that the, you know, that certain channels are limited or closed off in the, in the mind as well. And also, you know, not to get too far afield on that part of it, but um, you don't want those, cha you can't have those channels open to the degree they are in the midst of a high dose psychedelic session all the time, right? It's like, Aldous Huxley in his book, Doors of Perception, talked about a reducing valve, you know, like a tap, you know, and normally we're just having a few drips or a small stream coming down and, and uh, uh, you know, a strong psychedelic opens up those channels. Um, but it's, it's probably too much to, you know, it's probably way too much to, you know, to be in a state like that and taking in that much powerful information all the time. However, so the one side of the of this kind of two two prong function, so to speak, is that they, in doing that, in opening up these channels in the brain, they uh, they increase uh, the sharpness of perception about ourselves. This is that sort of one half, so to speak. Um, in other words, you could say they're truth serums. Uh, they give you a, potentially an honest look at who you are and you know what your obstacles are and that sort of thing, which is essential, as you know the the wonderful mystical poet Rumi once said. You know, you don't have to seek after love. You just have to look for the things that are standing in a way in the way of it, right? So um, we have to be honest with ourselves and undo or release or surrender out of, heal, bring to the light of the day, of day, etc. Those, um, you know, old childhood, infant wounds, maybe even past life wounds, as people like Chris Bache would say, we carry stuff from one life to another, etc. Um, and the and the psychedelics can do that. Different ones have different ways of doing that. Uh, ibogaine, for example, um, has been reported as um, uh, you know this is the ibogaine is the um, concentrated uh, psychoactive alkaloid from the root bark of the plant called uh, iboga or iboga, um, and uh, it's very powerful, long lasting. It can last like 24 to 38 30 hours. It's used in addiction treatment centers uh, commonly. And um, and one of the reasons, ways that it works, and people report this, that it's like it, it's as if it brings down a movie screen. And sometimes, I guess you, I haven't experienced that. I've taken a strong dose of iboga once, and you know, maintenance doses a few times, helping out as an assistant at iboga ceremonies. Um, and anyway, in any case, it 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 potentially brings down a, a movie screen and literally or even visually shows you the places where you got off your own path, you might say, when you were maybe very young, when you were abused or abandoned or whatever circumstance may have happened to you either, you know, acutely or over time. Um, and, uh, and by doing so, it allows you to, you know, just by 
seeing, allowing those things to come up, you can see them and release them in that way. That's the, that's the theory, and it seems to work really well. MDMA does something like that, too. Uh, um, uh, it's, you know, being touted these days for being, you know, very effective with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, as I understand it, although it doesn't always do this, and some people go, it's not all, it doesn't work for everybody, but um, but uh, at its best, what it does is it um, tends to knock out the fear of looking at the material, which is why PTSD is so hard to treat because people can't bring it up. Um, it's just too scary and painful, and it can re-traumatize you even to you know talk about it with a therapist and so on. What the situation is, if you can even contact it, because sometimes it's just buried, 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 right? Um, uh, but what MDMA does is it uh, it knocks out the fear factor of looking at the stuff, so you don't re-traumatize when it comes up. And then it adds in this wonderful quality of um, bringing love or compassion into the situation. So you can see it and you can have compassion for yourself and the situation or other people that are involved in it or whatever. And the other function of it or the other aspect of MDMA is that it, it, it keeps your mind clear. You know, you, it's not like uh, you, you don't get spacey or anything like that. You're not out in the cosmos. You're here. Your mind is sharp. You can talk about it with a therapist. You can remember what happened and so on. Right. So they all have different ways of functioning. And then coming back to this sort of, you know, two prong, you know, approach or attack, so to speak. Um, that's the one side, the truth serum side can, sh you know, give us sharp insights into who we are and what we need to do about that. And the other aspect of it, presumably the same thing that's happening, you know, with the way the brain is opening up is that, it, um, okay, so I'm just going to back up just a tiny bit here uh, and share a principle, which is, for example, what Buddhist teachings teach. Uh, not only Buddhist teachings by any stretch, and I'm not promoting any one religion or practice or you know way of waking up over another. The Buddhists did have a couple of thousand years on that plateau with no TV to work on these things, you know, um, and they did a lot of meditation. And what what they what they have come up with as a core teaching is that we are all by nature awake. You know, underneath all the turmoil, underneath all the confusion, underneath underneath all the beliefs and concepts and, you know, ideas that we have about who we are, what's real and all that sort of thing. Underneath all that, uh, under the ground, the overarching reality of all that is that we are in tune with the divine, so to speak, or we are awake is what they say. We are all naturally awake. In fact, the word Buddha, um, it, you know, Buddha the Buddha, the historical Buddha is described as a man, not a deity, um, just a man who, for whatever reason, was able to wake up. Uh, and, uh, and so the word Buddha from the trans, the, pardon me, the Sanskrit literally means awake or awakened or something like that. So, um, uh, you know, again, on this sort of uh, quasi-scientific way of describing it, our brains tend to be shut down because of, you know, all our limitations and fears and confusions and all that. And the um, psychedelics potentially open up those channels both to show the, the, the truths of who, who we are and what we're working with, but also that we are in this overarching uh, context or environment, uh, so to speak. Environment hardly covers it because it's sort of like the all, you know. 
Um, so those are the ways in which they can help, essentially, to give a long answer to your question, Rob. I, I have a question. Like, what do you think was the, 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 the downfall of our society? Because I, I do agree that we're in some kind of a pickle. Like, it, it definitely is, is very evident. But, like, here's what, here's what I was thinking. Like, the Egyptians say that, like, we have to embrace our ba energy, which is more like our soul energy. And the ka energy is like the material world, right? Uh-huh. So, like that makes me think, are we too invested in like technology in the material world? But it almost seems like in today's day and age, it seems like you have to have that stuff just to, to be a mm. human being. Right. It's like, we right. can't, I, I don't know. So where do we find the happy balance of like spirituality? And, um, and this doesn't even just have to do with psychedelics, but like in your mind, where do we find the, the happy balance between spirituality and living our normal lives? And like, transform mute or transmuting our consciousness to yeah have a more better world does that make well sense? first of all i'd like to say that i think our normal lives are our spiritual practice practice path and possibility you know uh, but maybe i could just have some fun with this question and take it back uh and 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 basically tell you a fairy tale or tell your you know viewers and listeners a, a kind of a fairy tale um I, i'm calling it a fairy tale uh, but it, it, it could be instructive. Um, I've come across this story a bunch of times uh, from different sources, um, sometimes channels, sometimes from psychonauts and different things like that. Uh, and, and there's a wonderful book that goes into this to some degree as well uh, called The uh, uh, Not in His Image, Gnostic Vision and so on uh, by, uh, oh, what's his name? His uh, last name is Lamb, John Lash Lamb, L-A-M-B. I like John Lash, yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing book, really. Um, incredible research. I mean, the guy learned the ancient languages to be able to read the Gnostic Gospels and all this. And um, so, uh, so sort of combining a number of these stories into one sort of fairy tale, uh, let's just say that there are creatives, creators, you know, um, they're eternal, whatever they are. One doesn't need to try to, you know, understand or explain that. Wait, can um, I just or, say, are you maybe thinking of the, maybe the Archons? Is that like, is that like what, where you're going with that? I'm not, I, I think the Archons, I think, uh, I'm not, sh I'm not sure if I remember this correctly, but I think the Archons were the, 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 the ones that, you know, got it wrong and were the more like the controllers. Yeah, um, that's like the from, controllers of our reality. The creator would right. be- Right, okay, so I'm not talking about them. Uh, that, right. those, those are the ones that uh, Lash Lamb would call the, um, the demiurge, the, the false gods, which is like sort of like ultimate ego kind of idea, right, and control. Yeah. So those are the problem. And this is part of this little fairy tale I'm trying to tell you here. So let's say that the original vision, in fact, Lash Lamb talks about it as Sophianic wisdom, Sophia. Um, it's just one way of talking about it. So um, was that, um, okay, so if you think of this eternal intelligence, however, whatever it, it they are, um, they're, they're great artists, they're great inventors, and they're always wanting to explore and try out new things, just like any great artist on this planet would, would right? In a, you know, in a way. Um, and so they had this idea in this, you know, quote unquote fairy tale, this idea of um, creating parts of themselves that could individuate and explore this particular realm. I mean, maybe lots of other planets too, for all I know, for all we know, but this particular configuration of energies and, you know, oxygen and carbon dioxide and all those different things um, individuate, but never lose track of the fact that 
they had both this individual um, agency, you might say, and the connection to the source. But in this story, over time, we got a little too chuffed with ourselves, I guess. Maybe that's the way what English people say. A little too um, gradually cut off from, and then to the point where almost everybody had forgotten, really disconnected from that source. And that was, you might say, uh, the, the, the source of endless problems. Because then it's like, we're lost. Um, uh, you know, in Buddhist way of talking about the cut-off person or the cut-off mental state, uh, the egoic state, the what they call samsara, the state of confused mind. It's constant struggle. Even though you might think you're doing well, uh, you know, we have our ups and downs. Some of us, you know, doing what think they're doing great, you know, a lot of the time. But underneath all that is this sort of itch or irritation or fear of losing uh, our ego, our identity, and so on. So because we're, 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 we're in the state of ignorance, of ignoring that side of ourselves, which, as my Buddhist teacher put it, is constantly irritating at us because it's the truth. It's the way things actually are. And we're literally resisting it. We're pushing it away. And that takes energy and struggle and control, right? So as we got farther and farther away from that, we started creating all, all this inner conflict, which then becomes projected as outer conflict. And this is where the controllers come in, the archons and the Holy Roman Empire and the, all these you know, people that um, it's really a psychological problem. They, they're trying to control themselves. They're trying to create a world for themselves where they think they feel safe. It's an illusion, but they're trying to do that, you know. And, and because certain kinds of people can have control over, you know, secular uh, mechanisms like government and so on, or religious mechanisms, which are essentially the same, you know, hierarchies of control, then they, they try to control everybody else, thinking that it'll help them be under control. And that's what the theory, so to speak, is, has been going on for the last couple of thousand years at least. And part of that, those kinds of visions People like Philip K. Dick, for example, psychonauts like Chris Bache and so on are seeing that that is breaking down and breaking up at this time. And not only that, but that it had to. So I'm not quite sure if I can give an authoritative answer on your question about, you know, all the technologies and so on. But I'll say this. Um, our minds are way too busy. The, you know, Rumi is great on this one. He talks about um, you know, he says he has, uh, phrases like or lines like uh, silence is the language of God. All else is poor translation or um, uh, let, you know, uh, let go of thinking so you can go to the core of life. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly misquoting him on some of these, but I got the I got the gist of it. You know, got another one like don't let them don't let your thoughts cover the moon of your heart. You know, he, he, he talks about that quite a bit. And it's, a, and it's the basis of Buddhist and other great teachings, those who really understand it, is that we have to, in a sense, die to that collection of stories. We have to let it go and let a gap come in. In the gap is where the truth, the ultimate or unconditional truth starts to come in, right? Um, so uh, our, I, it, what I'm saying here is that this has been an, this is an ancient problem. It's been going on for a very long time. It might be even more difficult in some ways now because of 
all the potential distractions. You know, I don't want to go on too long about this, but I look around my room here and there are so many things I have to know if I want to participate, you know, or even like ridiculously simple things. Excuse me a second. I'm just going to grab this. This is, I'm just using this as an example. <laughs> this is a simple little headlamp with a strap that I ordered from Amazon. Um, I won't go into the detail, but to use this simple device, there's about 12 different controls, you know, like there's an on and off, there's a long pause and a short pause, there's different colors and all these different things. And that's just one of about 30, uh, you know, both hard hard devices or hardware devices and software devices and programs you use. You know, you got Twitter, you got Instagram, you got Facebook, you got your website, you know, all these things. It's a complicated world we have here. Um, but bottom line is, as my Buddhist teacher used to say, we have to slow down the speed of mind. We have to calm down the speed of mind. We have to give more space into in it. So um, the psychedelics are good for like these breakthrough experiences, you know, opening us up to the possible and the truths about ourselves and so on. But really, the ongoing day-to-day, moment-by-moment work is to, you know, slow down, walk, you know, the same Buddhist teacher said, it's got the walk of the elephant, you know, that you're present, you're dignified, you're, you're there, you're not constantly filling your mind with stuff that you don't absolutely have to. Eckhart Tolle, the guy who wrote The Power of Now, talks about that. He says, the, the attitude you want to take uh, toward your thinking mind, I think he just calls it mind, I would call it the thinking mind, is to treat it as a tool that you can pick up when you need it, but it's not going to rule you. You're able to put it down. Now, most of us would have to admit, including myself, of course, that that we're not fully in control of that. You know, we, we have random thoughts going through our our, our mind all the time. This is, you know, going beyond psychedelics. This is the basic principles, but the psychedelics are the tools in service of, of this larger picture, you might say. So um, uh, we need to be able to uh, come back to just being present, being empty. You know, there's a, there's a Buddhist saying that emptiness is the beginning of wisdom or empty, uh, emptiness, uh, what, how does it go? Um, emptiness leads to luminosity or something like that. So the emptiness means uh, emptying out of all the um, overlay that gets in the way of things, all the sort of speed of mind and the confusion and the anxiety and fear and all these different things and, you know, anger and whatever, depression, all of it. Um, we, we, we have to allow ourselves to see and release a lot of this stuff and let our minds calm down enough that we can feel the presence of reality, if you will. I, I, I don't think I should say more about that now. No, no, that's amazing. That was fascinating. That was great. And one of the questions I heard that was brought up on another podcast, I really do try to do my research for shows. And like, I, I thought this was amazing was, and I'll get into this, was that psychedelics you say are a reality medicine, not mm. an escapism. And I like that because it's like, it's like, it's like psychedelics are okay when they're in a controlled environment, when it's for like consciousness expansion, it's not to like party and like go do psychedelics and other drugs. Like, you know what no. I mean? Like, it's, it's like, it's like, um, you know, cause I, 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 I here's my thing. I, 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 I've, I've experimented with psychedelics from like my, I'm 43. I just turned 43, but I went in my teens, uh, you know, like in my late early, like in my 18, 19, when I was 18, I tried LSD and um, MDMA, which is like ecstasy. And then 
or you know whatever what is that then then in my 20s i probably i think i did shrooms and then and now in my third late 30s and early 40s i took dmt and shrooms for more like a consciousness expansion because i did it for my awakening but like i see the differences in my mentality from when i was doing it for i wouldn't say i was doing it to escape but i was doing it more like a party thing and now yeah. i see it for what it really is more like a consciousness expansion tool. yeah is that yeah right? sort of like a thrill you know and when you're 18 you don't give a damn right you try yeah. anything you know you know typically don't even check to see the quality of the of the, the product or medicine you're you're using especially if it comes in some kind of pill form or whatever capsule you know whatever um yeah no that's that that's it uh i don't mean to be too judgmental about the quote-unquote recreational use but it is a really important issue because here's the thing ultimately these things can um shock us out of this ego right they can pull us out of this ego and show us these truths that can be shocking that can be terrifying um, and if that happens to you and you're not in any kind of a safe container or you don't have a guide with you um, to point out that this is what's supposed to happen when you really are using these things properly you know terence mckenna once said that uh, he thought the 1960s were to a large extent misplayed uh, in terms of working with psychedelics, because most people didn't not only didn't want to experience ego dissolution, they were terrified of it. And I can attest to that from my own experience, because I did, you know, uncontrolled use of LSD in particular in those days. Um, and uh, so uh, here's an example. Here's a perfect example. Um, uh, a friend of mine, John, from way back then, uh, I don't know him anymore. He, I don't, so I'm not using his last name and I'm not giving away any, you know, state secrets here. Uh, I wasn't at this one. This was uh, over at another friend's place. He took LSD. I don't think the other guys did. I'm not sure. Anyway, a couple of other of my friends were there. John um, freaked out and he said, I'm dying. So that, you know, you think you're dying, Right even though there's no physical symptom that tells you you're dying, you know, it's not like your heart is stopping and you're stopping breathing. You're dying to this identity. And this identity is so over encompassing. We're so attached to it that it can be terrifying. Right? So in the ideal circumstance, if John had been in the right place, if he had been in, in a situation where there was a guide who knew what they were doing, um, had experience with these states, that him or herself or a ceremony, you know, that's protected and, etc etc um what what the um the guide would have said should have said to him at that point is yes you're dying to this old self you know to the constricted self so breathe just breathe don't buy into the fear just keep letting go keep letting go and it'll change you know i don't know rob if you're familiar with uh, a lot of the clinical work they, they've done at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland, I guess it is, uh, for example, with end-of-life patients like uh, terminal, you know, cancer people, right? Um, and they, they do these things really thoroughly. They have months of prep, and then they follow them up for months, if not years afterwards, to see what happened with this one psilocybin experience. Typically, it's one, I believe. Um, so they, as they, what, the way they prepare them, in, among other aspects of the preparation, is they say, you know, if fear comes up, uh, don't buy into it. Just breathe, relax, and it'll change. 
And so what happened was generally people had these amazing experiences. Um, uh, something like a third of them had what they would call mystical experiences. And uh, the ones that had uh, the most, you know, they asked them questions like, was this like the most mystical experience you've ever had or one of the top three? And either it was like the most or it was like equal with, you know, the birth of their first child or somewhere in there, right? Um, uh, and the ones that had the most powerful or clear, definite mystical experiences were the ones who changed their attitude about their illness the most, like flipped it upside down. And instead of being despondent and et cetera, et cetera, they're now like, I'm going to take life by the balls and I'm going to live it fully for the rest of my time, whether I've got three months, six months or two years, you know, I'm going to embrace life because what it showed them, and this was this half that I was telling you about earlier, you talked about earlier, is that the half is that we are part of an eternal cosmos and we're safe within it in that sense because we are just shards of the divine, you might say. And 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 somehow, I don't know if you can really explain that, but you know, it may, I don't know if it makes sense to somebody who hasn't had an experience like that. But when people have that experience, it's just incontrovertible. You know, it's unambiguous. You just know. Um, you know, I've had experiences with psychedelics where, you know, people often say this, you know, that you have an experience where you feel like you're, you're, you've come home. It's just aha, you know, it's an aha kind of experience. And it's unarguable. You may not be able to explain it, but it's unarguable. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, there's a teaching um, attributed to Jesus. Who knows who actually said it? I'd like to think it was Jesus, but it doesn't really matter um, on one level uh, uh, that you know, it has this phrase, the peace that passes all understanding. Well, lots of, I don't know, lots of people, I've certainly had glimpses of that in psychedelic states where you just go, yes, of course, this is reality that you can't argue with it, right? It is the ultimate way. This is what I meant by Buddhist teaching saying that our nature is to be awake. Our nature is to be free of what pulls us out of this now, pulls us away from this inner peace, pulls us away from the awakened mind, which is also the awakened heart, you know, that the heart of compassion and creativity. Um, yeah, so I, I'm starting to get rambly there, so I'll stop and let you ask something else or say something else. One, one thing I think that goes into this is that these aren't meant to be like most, they're not to be meant to be a quick fix, right? This is a long, this is definitely a long-term journey for most people, like, it, like almost like similar to like microdosing, right? Like, I, I don't know if I'm right or not, but like, like people microdose on a daily basis to try uh -huh. to create those neuro, new, new neuro pathways in their brain. Because I heard yep. that shrooms can do that. They, I say shrooms. I know that's a bad, bad word. That's fine. But, you know, I heard they can create new neuropathways in the brain. I don't really yes. know the science behind that. But, like, you know, that's what I've heard. And then, um, but, they, but it's more, this is more like a long-term thing, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so let's distinguish between microdosing and macrodosing, though. Um, microdosing is more like, it's more like almost like a, you know, pharmaceutical in intervention in that sense, right? Um, it, you know, it's small, small changes in brain chemistry that can help with depression and so on. And, and by the way, I'm not the ultimate expert or authority on this uh, and haven't read a lot of the direct science, but what I'm hearing, you know, scuttlebutt as it were, is that the science is not fully there on the efficacy of microdosing psilocybin, for example. It, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. We're going there, but there's a lot more 
you know, gold standard research needing to be done. It's actually the kind of research you can do with, with psilocybin microdosing. You can't really do the full on, I don't know if people know what gold standard research is. It's, um, it's um, uh, studies, uh, uh, the simplified version is that it's um, uh, double blind placebo controlled randomized uh, studies, right? So double blind meaning neither the researcher nor the, you know, the, the um, participant or whatever you call it, um, know whether they've got the real stuff or not. Um, placebo controlled, same thing means some people get the placebo and some people get the real thing um, and um, randomized. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Uh, uh, I'm not I'm not sure about that part of it, but that's the basic idea anyway. Um, and so uh, you can do that with microdosing because people don't necessarily apparently, you know, what I, the definition of microdosing that I've been told or read is that you don't really notice the effects like in the, in the moment, you're not having a psychedelic experience per se, you know, you might notice a slight more alertness or calmness or whatever it is, if it works for you but it's mild enough it's subtle enough that you could have placebos and you know the real stuff and compare the two groups over time whereas you can't do that with the macrodoses because you know right away people go oh yeah well this, this is not the placebo right um so anyway that's microdosing and you can do that more or less every day that some of the protocols suggest like something like three on and two off or whatever you know not necessarily every day um, and that's a different kind of a thing for, you know, it's kind of organic or physical, biological as much as anything. It's not really like the insight that changes you. That's where the macrodose kind of stuff comes in. And, and, but you're, as to what you're saying about it's a long, slow path. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, I was just going to say another, another long way of doing it would be like somebody who goes on an ayahuasca journey every year, but does it like consistently like because they're they're going for constant spiritual evolution like i mean i don't know how long you would have to go i'm not sure you know i i don't know if i've ever dissolved my ego i i don't think i have you know mm -hmm. I, I think it's definitely still there but like but uh, do you think that's like what people do it for like they go on these ayahuasca journeys every once in a while because they're trying to do the long path or um to spiritual recovery or spiritual enlightenment uh, I don't think you can simplify it too much there. Um, I think everybody goes into these things for a different reason. Uh, probably if there was one reason for engaging with psychedelics that's the most common or most you know universal or close to universal is um, things don't feel completely right. You know, like I was saying earlier on about nobody feels completely right on one level. Um, you know, if you got your mojo working, you might think it is, but then there are times when that falls apart too, for most people, you know, you, you know, your, your, your business doesn't work out, your relationship doesn't work out, you, you know, somebody insults you and all of a sudden you feel like crap or whatever, you know, there, there's all kinds of ways that we go up and down and up and down. And that's all what Buddhist teachings call conditional, you know, it's conditional on whether you got your mojo working, everything's going right for you or not, right? Um, the ultimate sort of extreme of that is bipolar kind of stuff right where you're when you're up it's like everything seems to be beautifully flowing and when you're down it's like you can't imagine that was ever flowing right you know i'm stuck down here forever so um uh um uh let's see now where was i going with that oh um yeah so everybody has different reasons but everybody's coming into probably for the most part because on some level they're suffering or confused and they want to they want to change you know 
maybe some people come into these medicines just because they've heard about them and they think it's a thrill or sensational or they just want to have the experience. But I, I think most people, especially ones, those who are you know serious about it, um, are coming in because they feel like they need a change of some kind or another in their lives, right? Um, so, but there's different ways that people talk. Uh, you can look at uh, how one might uh, bring these medicines into the, your life, one's life. Uh, some people, for example, one of my favorite chapters in, in my book that we're talking about here, how psychedelics can help save the world is Tyson Yunkaporta. He's an Australian Aboriginal um, academic researcher, woodcarver, stuff like that. Um, he, and he's just wonderful. But, but um, what he, his, his chapter is almost cautionary. Like he says, um, uh, uh, if you have to keep coming back to these substances like every week or whatever, I mean, people do that, right? You know, they'll do ayahuasca once a week or once every couple of weeks or whatever. If you, if you have to do that, maybe you didn't get the message properly. Maybe you didn't get the teaching properly. Maybe you didn't ground it into your life properly. And you have to keep chasing, you know, they, there's this term, we have medicine chasers, you know, people are constantly thinking, there's something there. And that's, that's kind of like the cosmic joke, almost that there's no there there, really, there's nothing out, there's nothing there on one level. This, that's, that's a key issue, I think, actually, is that ultimately, what it comes down to is just, you know, the stuff that I was talking about earlier, like learning how to calm your mind, be in your body, breathe, let the breath happen, uh, watch your thoughts come up when they come up and don't buy into them. You know, the, I have a book by a guy named Vernon Howard who says, all the mystics agree on this one. They may agree, disagree on some, you know, doctrinal principles or whatever, but they all agree on this one thing, which is that this, this sort of the open secret, if you will, uh, to awakening is, um, uh, observe your thoughts when they arise and don't judge them at all. Like don't judge them positive or negative, just look at them. And if they're sabotaging thoughts, you can just say, those are, um, those are the voices of the uh, false identity. Uh, um, there's a, a recent documentary, which is pretty cool, um, called Stutz. Have you heard about that one? It's on Netflix. Yeah. It's conversations between the actor Jonah Hill and his therapist, Phil Stutz. Phil talks about this in, in his own language. He calls the voice of the false identity part X. <laughs> it's like the little demon inside you who's always trying to sabotage you, right? Um, so um, you just have to identify it. You have to recognize it, which is why calming and allowing some space in the mind can be really helpful. If you're constantly busy, you don't even get, you don't even really notice that stuff half the time. You're just driven. You're just moving, 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 you know, busy, busy, busy all day. And if you stop and then you fall asleep, you know, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, we have that potential to see these things and let them go. So, um, the psychedelics, uh, can be, um, not particularly useful if we just keep chasing the medicine and thinking that there's something out there and we never quite get there, right? It sounds like we're one, it's just beyond our reach all the time. Um, so um, what Tyson would say is, you know, do it really right once, twice, a few times, whatever. And it should give you, the experience should give you enough to work on for a very long time, right? On the other hand, that's why I say there's different ways to look at this. Um, there's a guy Mike named Tyson? Benny Shen. Go ahead. Go ahead. If you want. Did you say Mike Tyson? 
Oh, we have no, I didn't know. This guy's name is Tyson Yunkaporta. He's in the book. Uh, yeah, Mike Tyson, I know he's had some experiences he, he, he with. A couple times. Fi- he's changed. Fi- I mean, I don't know how changed he is, but he's definitely done. I, I think he's changed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, oh, he's I didn't a, mean to cut you off. I was so excited because I thought you. I yeah. Mean, no, no, no. No, I've heard about Mike and, and what's happened with him. Um, I think these substances have changed him a lot. Um, uh, so. You know, but he was coming from a pretty violent, you know, confused sort of a place, if you, if you, if I could say respectfully, you know, I mean, you know, the guy that was beating the crap out of people for a living, biting their ears and saying really ridiculous things and stuff like that. So, you know, there is a, there is this kind of, um, what would you call it, almost like an archetype of the more, the more, the deeper the suffering, the greater the potential for transmuting that, you know, so uh, like in the Native American church, for example, uh, the peyote uh, medicine. Uh, the, the they most of the people that come into that church, the native people, are coming from really difficult circumstances. You know, as I used to do a lot of those ceremonies, and you know, they used to say that talk about their days of drinking and drugging and gunning and running, right? You know, outside the law, um, making a mess of things, constantly in conflict with themselves and with people and stuff like that. And they come in, and they do that medicine, and it shows them a whole other side of themselves, and it shows them the truth beyond themselves, and it. You know, it's like I was saying earlier, you know, the, 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 these medicines can show you uh, the truth about yourself. Um, and they can also show you this, you know, great and amazing kind of world that's beyond that, the world of peace and love and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so people come into that teepee and they go, oh, my God, you know, I'm on a path to destruction here and I have the choice. I don't have to keep doing this. That's why the United States government that's totally afraid of mind-altering substances actually granted full legality to the use, to use peyote medicine for those for Native Americans. Um, so what I was going to say earlier, though, is on the one hand, maybe a few experiences, if done, if done really well, um, can be enough for some people and then grind you know, ground those practices or those insights back into their daily practice of meditation, yoga, and so on, and just being present. However, I was going to mention a guy named Benny Shannon, who has a book from, I don't know, about 20 years ago called The Antipodes of the Mind. And he's he's part of um, a religion that uses ayahuasca called the Santo Daime religion that comes from Brazil. And uh, he says that ayahuasca is like going to university, so you have an experience with it and you get shown things, you know, it gives you lessons, you might say. And then just like if you're, I don't know, say um, studying at university or maybe a better analogy is uh, taking guitar lessons. You know, your teacher, uh, you go, you know, and you have an hour with your teacher and he says, OK, you're doing great. Now, here, try this. Learn these scales. You know, here's some scales. Here's some things, you know, blah, blah, blah. Go and work on that. You go home and you work on it. Next time you come back there. Uh, you, if you've done your homework, the teacher goes, hey, nice, nice, nicely done. Now I can give you some new material. So Benny Shannon says ayahuasca is like that, that uh, if you put those um, lessons into practice in your life and then come back sometime later, the ayahuasca actually recognizes that, which is a whole other topic, by the way, about the spirit within these medicines, um, that the ayahuasca can recognize that and go, yes, I see you've done some work. You know, I see you've done a little healing. You've paid attention. You've worked with it. You've tried to bring that clarity, that humility, whatever it is into your life. And now I can show you something that takes you a little further and send you off again to do some more homework.
you know so there's those two kind of uh views of it so of these substances way, like oh, i'm sorry i was gonna say it's in a way that like i like some psychedelics can teach us life lessons or help us learn life lessons through our yeah. evolution yes absolutely oh yeah well that's what i've been talking about with you uh is um just lessons about who you are. Like, let me give you an example. Sometimes little examples or anecdotes or stories are, are helpful. Um, uh, the Santo Daimi religion that I mentioned, uh, they have a chapter here in my town of Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. And uh, I have participated in a bunch of them. I'm not an actual member, so to speak, uh, but I've probably done, I don't know, 30 or so of them over the last six, seven years. And um, uh, in one of them, uh, you know, really strong medicine, uh, you know, deep state, as it were. And this one word popped up and it seemed like it was out there. It didn't seem like it was in my head, even though obviously it's all, you know, from my perceptual capabilities and so on. Um, uh, but it was, the word was pride. It's just the one word. It wasn't a sentence. It wasn't, a, a, you know, like a, a lesson of, you know, the, of, of narrative content. It was just one word, pride. And I, I immediately felt like, you, you know, you know these things intuitively, right? You just get it or you grok it, as they say. Um, I immediately recognized that it was for me, that the word was said for me. And it was, in a sense, coming from the spirit of the plant. And, 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 my, and my first reaction was, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm, I'm not a really pride, prideful person. I'm not arrogant. I'm not, I don't have this sort of superior mentality or, you know, disdain other people or any of that sort of stuff. So... I don't really quite know what that meant. Um, but then this is where the grounding work, the in, what they now, what people often in psychedelic work call integration, right? Integration work. So I kind of go home and I, I go, okay, wait a minute. I get it. Pride is very subtle, very tricky. Pride is the way that we separate ourselves. You know, the way that we think we're special or important or even like we need approval or we need to be heard, you know, we need to be recognized. That's all in this sort of rubric of, of, of pride. And I got, okay, so yeah, I'm not, you know, in the typical sense, arrogant like that, you know, walking around, you know, like I'm some big important person, but, but I have resisted surrendering to god if you will or to the divine or to the peace that passes all understanding um and that's pride that's holding yourself back and holding yourself in some kind of special situation or unique or isolated or separated situation not not consciously even really you know um so anyway i gave that example as a way that these medicines can teach you what you called life lessons 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 <laughs> life lettuces vegetables for your path yeah um, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, one, one part you did mention was the government. Like, what do you think about like the histories? Because I know some of my hardcore conspiracy theorists are going to say, oh, the, the, the CIA gave out LSD on purpose. And, and, and I don't think that, but I just know what people say because I'm in the conspiracy realm. Like, what are your thoughts on that era? And like, do you think that the government was giving out psychedelics for control purposes? Or do you think it was never like that? Well, um, there's conspiracies and there's conspiracies, right? Um, I don't want to get too distracted here, but I have theories about conspiracy theories uh, in some respect that they can be um, a grand illusion. They can be yet another way 
that we separate ourselves and protect ourselves, that we are, you know, victims or vulnerable to nefarious forces, okay? So there, there's, there's reasons to question oneself when one gets heavy-handed or intense or dogmatic or single-minded about quote-unquote conspiracy theories. However, um, there are nefarious behaviors um, and uh, they're not they're not conspiracy theories. They're just historical facts. So um, there's a wonderful book, by the way, that really goes into this stuff in depth called Chasing the Scream. Um, so the thing is there, this, this is, this is, let's tie this back to this thing that we were talking about, or I was talking about, you know, quite a while ago with you is this whole idea that there's the controllers, right? Um, that are trying to, Ultimately, they're trying to control themselves because they're really screwed up inside, you know, they're really messed up inside. And they think that by controlling other people, they can they can alleviate that. It's a grand illusion. You can't do it. It doesn't work, but they do it anyway. So um, in I think it was 1930. Um, the United States government started a new branch uh, or a new bureau called the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. I think it morphed later into the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, um, and it was headed by one Harry Anslinger. Now, Harry was a piece of work, right? Um, he 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 wanted um, money for the bureau. He wanted to advance. It was a giant ego project for this Harry Anslinger guy. I'm sure the guy was a mess, uh, you know, inside. <laughs> um, and so they really started to do this thing of demonizing. Uh, you know, illegal drugs like um, uh, heroin and cocaine and cannabis and all this stuff, you know, um, it was it was a racist agenda. It was um, it was just and it wasn't based on facts at all. And in fact, it made things worse uh, because they went on this you know rampage and they started busting drug dealers and all this kind of stuff. And what happened was they just raised the stakes significantly so that the people that were selling the drugs became incredible, increasingly more sophisticated and sneaky and tricky and violent. Um, they didn't work at all, but um, it, one of the, you know, so they, they demonized all this stuff uh, without science and cannabis was, was, was possibly the number one victim of that process um, that they, they were using cannabis in a racist way against, black people, immigrants, and stuff like that. And they come up with all this complete nonsense about how it's like the most dangerous drug going and it leads to violent behavior. And, you know, anyone who knew around cannabis knows that that's complete nonsense, right? But most people outside of these sort of subcultures who weren't using it, the musicians were using it. You know, the Harry J. Anslinger guy went after Billie Holiday. He pretty much ruined her life, in, you know, harassed her. He had his guys harassing her for years, you know, really, really made things difficult for her. Um, all for this same, you know, agenda that they had. And, uh, and they brought in this sort of like right wing press of William, William Randolph Hearst and the San Francisco, I think it was called the San Francisco Examiner. They, you know, they, these articles about reefer madness and all this stuff. Um, so uh, what that led to was the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. And it was a combination of people like Harry J. Anslinger trying to demonize it for his own agenda and own purposes and get money from the government to advance this new bureau. And um, uh, um, 
excuse me, um, uh, 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 corporate interests, uh, like, um, uh, like um, who are the people that do the DuPont? Yeah, DuPont nylon and all this. So what was happening around that time, and this is loosey-goosey history, but it's sort of in, in that general time, they were developing petroleum-based products to replace uh, what used to be, in many cases, hemp products, right? Uh, so hemp was used for rope and sails and all kinds of different things, and even medicine, um, which is a whole other story. Hemp was part of the legal pharmacopoeia that you could get in any dispensary or walk into any drugstore up until about 1930 and get cannabis products, you know, mother's little helper, they sometimes called it. It was legit. It was great. People knew about it. And then they demonized it. And by, you know, in with this Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, they, um, it was a tax trick but basically what it did was it outlawed um they were actually um using hemp uh as a as a they were actually going after hemp as much as they were going after cannabis because they wanted that was the other side of it like i say they wanted uh to replace hemp you know in the marketplace with these petroleum-based products and artificial you know blah 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 um and it just slipped through the the congress nobody paid any attention to it and all of a sudden you you know all the hemp farmers were put out of business and so on and so on and cannabis was made illegal in every respect and so on so yeah you can have conspiracy theories and then you can have actual history so there was this agenda and now i'm reading another really interesting book by dr peter grinspoon g-r-i-n spoon um, he's the son of Dr. Lester Grinspoon, who wrote two really important books, one in 1971 called Marijuana Reconsidered and another one in 1993 called Marijuana, the Forbidden Medicine. Lester Grinspoon was a psychiatrist at Harvard who started out trying to demonize cannabis himself and found out the complete opposite, that it's a great medicine for a lot of people and wrote these books about it. And then his son now has written this wonderful book called... Um, uh, seeing through the smoke and in the early part of the book he just talks about how it's been impossible to get the truth about cannabis so if you want to call that a conspiracy theory go ahead because um, uh, for example all um, funded legitimate studies of cannabis and other drugs have to go through NIDA the National Institute for Drug Abuse which is a leading misleading or leading title to start with, right? It's not the National Institute for Drug Examination or Investigation. It's the National Institute for Drug Abuse. Um, and uh, the guy that, I, if I got it right from the book, I think this is going on the record, I guess for you, you know, I hope I got it right. I think the guy's name is Robert DuPont and he's been the head of NIDA for a long time. And he's on record saying things like cannabis is evil and it's like the worst, most dangerous drug and all this reefer madness nonsense from way back when so they're not going to approve cannabis studies in the united states so it's been very difficult to get the truth um like a proper gold standard kinds of studies on cannabis that's so yeah i have a long way to answer your question but so there's there's you know there's sort of like in person an individual person's need to look for enemies and all that but there's there have been nefarious agendas as well uh you know, the same thing happened in the late 60s, right? They, the, the hippies freaked them out, you know, they freaked out the, the controllers and they went, ah, and there was this massive backlash, backlash and they put all these substances into uh, the uh, Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act where uh, no medical use whatsoever and a high poss possibility of, of harm, basically.
cannabis is in there too to this very day that's insane I, yeah, that, yeah. that is insane like i i take i take uh, cannabis well i take edibles you know i don't i mean like, I, I don't see any problem with it like you know like um some people say that it can get I, man we're, we have we're, we've been going and i'm gonna have to have you on for a part two this is too too much interesting stuff like <laughs> sure you know, i'm happy to do I that talk to you all day about this stuff i have to do another show but um I, I would just finish what I was saying. I, some people say that, that like um, when you take these drugs, it opens up portals because I do paranormal too. So I just have to ask you uh, this. Some yep. people, when we take drugs that it can open up portals for entities to come through and implant uh, your thoughts. That's an actually great point. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so um, uh, I would say that is possible. I have definitely heard that. Um, and and I think the, the, the most important thing there, first of all, these substances are not for everybody. If your boundaries are not good to start with, if you're very fragile, you know, they sometimes say that, for example, cannabis can, it doesn't cause schizophrenia, but they, there's evidence to indicate that if you're at risk of developing schizophrenia, the amplification function of cannabis can, can hasten the onset of a latent schizophrenia, right? Um, uh, so they do open channels up. And I think there is the possibility um, for, you know, negative energies to come in that way. I don't think it happens often. And I think a lot of it uh, has uh, the, perhaps the most important aspect of protecting oneself from those possibilities is to be in the right circumstances. This is why, you know, the ancient traditions um, uh, like uh, the ayahuasca traditions from South America, from the Amazon, they have these songs, which I, I, I've been told directly from the people who run these you know, ceremonies, the ayahuascaros. They're songs that uh, when you do your apprenticeship properly, which ideally takes years, which is really an important issue we could talk about, you know, in part two, uh, you know, just declaring yourself an ayahuascaro after a couple of months in South America, that's a potential recipe for disaster for some people. Um, uh, you know, the traditional uh, apprenticeship takes years and you don't even start leading ceremonies or doing healing work until your master, your mentor says you're ready, right? That's the tradition. Same in Buddhism, same in the Native American church with the peyote medicine, et cetera, et cetera, right? And one of the things that they're supposed to learn is to connect with the, the spirits of the medicine or the spirit of the medicine, and they learn their songs from them. So these ikaros, they call them in, the ayahuasca, in ayahuasca work, um, I've been told these are songs that are downloaded, like mute, the muse, so to speak. You know, they're, they're received, channeled, whatever, um, and they're protective. You know, they'll literally say a song will come in like a spirit being and saying, use me now for this person, you know, help this person, protect this person, right? If you don't have some kind of protection in general in the environment, just slight tangent, but not really, uh, Tibetan Buddhist practices, the more advanced ones that they do, the first thing they do with some of these more elaborate you know, historical practices is they clear the space. That's what Native Americans are doing oftentimes when they're smudging and things like that, right? They're protecting, purifying space. One of the practices I did as, as a student of Tibetan Buddhism involved, like the very first thing was you you um, light uh, um, it's like cedar or something and put it on a uh, whatever, the plug, you know, um, get it smoky. 
and the thing and walk around the room and there's a chant that goes back hundreds of years and it's basically saying all lower beings you know you're not welcome here right you are not allowed in here um, I asked this question once to Canucus uh, uh, Littlefish, who ran a lot of the Native American church ceremonies that I went to. He said, we don't have that problem here because we create a protective container. You know, at another time, when you have more time, I could explain how they do that uh, to some degree, but they well, don't have that problem. We, we got but, to, sorry, I'll let you finish. Yeah, I'll, let me just finish up with, with uh, you know, referencing your, your question. I have heard stories about people who have come like, okay, I'll try to keep this one super brief. I know you got another interview coming up. Um, a guy that I know, he's like a really powerful psychic and a healer. He said some uh, women came to him uh, looking for help. They had been to Machu Picchu in Peru and they'd taken, I'm not sure which psychedelic, um, up there at Machu Picchu. You know, no container, no ceremony, no protection. He said, these were pretty together women. They were all like healers themselves all five of them came back demon haunted all five of them and they needed a lot of healing work they needed you know exorcism essentially right um so yes it can happen and i and i think the most important thing for people working this with these medicines to understand is this the, the core of the issue here is protection safe containers people who know what they're doing proper properly trained and ethical guides sitters therapists etc ceremonial leaders yeah yeah that, i would agree and this is this is beyond fascinating we're gonna have to do a part two but thank you so much and can you tell everybody where to find the book and uh where to how if they want to come to your conference and uh all your website and anything else you want to promote or whatever oh well thanks a lot for asking that question i appreciate it uh okay so the conference uh it's in november the third to the fifth it'll be uh live streamed online as well if people can't get to vancouver british columbia canada um, uh, but it's a wonderful conference. We do everything in the same room. So there's a sense of ceremony and going through a journey together over three days. It's not just like facts and information for three days. Um, we've been doing it for 12 years. We get a lot of the leaders as I, uh, like, I think, uh, last year, something like seven of the people that spoke at the conference are in the book and vice versa. 14 of the contributors to the book have spoken at the conference. Um, uh, so that's that. And the, the website, we don't have information for this year yet, but we got all the past stuff and all the past presenters and all that um, uh, is uh, spiritplantmedicine.com. Uh, for uh, myself, I have a website, Stephen Gray, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G-R-A-Y, stephengrayvision.com. And if, if you look up Stephen Gray or Stephen Gray Vision, you can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, uh, you know, the, the usual kind of channels that way. Um, and if you want to buy the book, you, you can find it easily. Most, almost any bookstore will either have it or be able to order it. All the big chains have it. Amazon has it. Um, the publisher, Inner Traditions, has it. And a quick way to get it uh, or to get those links is to go to my website, stephengrayvision.com, because the links are right there on maybe the homepage or something. Um, there, It's really accessible. And the, the other thing that I, I'm hoping, well, two things. One is I've got this, you mentioned in the intro, I have this YouTube channel, Stephen Gray Vision, and I've interviewed uh, close to 30 people some of the same people that are in the book and at the conference, uh, again, leading influencers, brilliant people, uh, helping, helping us all with their vision and their insight and knowledge. 
uh, and um, uh, the other, what was the, oh shoot, and there was one other thing I wanted to mention about that. Um, never mind. I think I've got it covered. It's fine for now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. This was awesome. And I'll send you a link when I upload it. This was really fascinating. I think this is going to be really well received. Good. I hope so. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. All right. Have a good night. Um, good night. Yeah.